good to see you here. And we have, uh, we have now been in the Gospel of Luke for two, for dose, count them, two years. And uh, we are now into the final week. We're into the final week of uh, the ministry of Christ on earth before the uh, crucifixion. In fact, uh, in our passage today, it's, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. So here's kind of the interesting thing. So we've been in this two years. And it's the Tuesday before the crucifixion. Uh, so it's just uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, it's only going to take us about five months to, <laughs> to cover three days. There's just a lot of stuff in there. But uh, last week we talked about the, the entry of Christ into Jerusalem, marking the beginning of this last week. It's the Passover holiday, which we talked about. Last week was uh, full of emotion. There was the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So people are celebrating and, and they're excited. And you might remember the religious leaders are, are telling Jesus, calm your disciples down. And he's like, no, this is, they should be celebrating. They should be excited. And then, and then a few minutes later, we have a picture of Christ looking over Jerusalem and weeping. We talked about the fact that in life, life is like that. At any given moment, there are things to rejoice in. There are things to weep about. And, and today, we're going to look at another emotion uh, at the beginning of this passage, that of, of anger, of righteous anger, of, of frustration and indignation. And, and it made me think uh, back uh, in the middle of this last week, uh, I don't know if you've ever been like maybe just angry, frustrated, not even kind of realized it. And I think I was maybe there, I think it was Wednesday or something like that. And I was, uh, I was at Safeway in Camas and I was putting some gas in a vehicle. It wasn't actually my vehicle because I haven't had my vehicle for almost three weeks. They've been working on the brakes. We won't try to get bitter about that. Um, but they're working on it. So somebody had loaned me their vehicles, a Toyota, and, and I was putting gas in the vehicle and I heard somebody behind me saying in a real sarcastic voice, oh, I see you finally got saved and got a Toyota and got rid of the Ford. And I turned around and there's a guy, he's a friend of mine, and uh, he's a very sarcastic guy. And we'll just, all, we'll just call him John because that's his name and um, <laughs> make it easy to keep everything straight. And so John had kind of smirk on his face and like, oh, I'm glad you got rid of the Ford. And so anyway, He's putting gas in his Toyota, of course, and I was putting it in, and now uh, the one I was driving. And so, anyways, I started explaining to him the situation I was in that I've been driving my um, my Escape, and the brakes went out on it, and you know I'm like took a Les Schwab, and they they replaced like the master cylinder and the calipers and the brake lines and everything. And still didn't have still didn't have brakes, and so then I went to the Ford dealership, and uh, they ran a diagnostic, and they changed a big uh, you know the computer module for the whole uh, the anti braking system and the um, hydraulic power unit um, that is code for super expensive all right and um, and then when and, and that didn't work and then they replaced everything Les Schwab replaced and it, and I still so now two and a half weeks into it and and you know the company that can you sense my frustration that that designed the vehicle and made the vehicle and sold in the vehicle still can't even fix the vehicle? So apparently as I'm explaining it to him, I'm getting pretty worked up. I, I don't really remember it that way, but I probably was. So much so that in the middle of the conversation, we hear some a voice and we turn around and there's a police officer in his squad car hanging out the window saying, is everything cool here? <laughs> So I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke. So I looked at the guy and I'm like, oh, and I thought maybe I knew him and I was, you know, but nothing was registering. And I saw so I laughed and I'm like, yeah, everything's cool. And he says, no, I'm serious. 
Is everything cool here? <laughs> no, John, he's a big guy. I mean, if uh, maybe the guy thought I could take him, I don't know. But he's like, it looks like you guys are about to really get into it here. Do I need to get out of the car? Right? <laughs> I'm like, I could just see the, uh, see the newspaper now. Pastor Bob goes at it. Doesn't do so well, but... Uh, but apparently I was uh, frustrated. I was, I was upset. And, you know, sometimes Christians say that Christians should never get angry, never, never get upset. But actually, when you look in the Bible, it, it says that there is a time for anger. Probably not what I was upset about. But uh, in James 1.19, for instance, it says, be slow to anger. So it doesn't say that you should never get angry, but it says you should be very slow. You should take your time and get in there, making sure it's the, it's the right thing. In Ephesians 4.26, it says, be angry and yet do not sin. So there's a way to be righteously angry without sinning, without saying things that you shouldn't say, without being abusive or, or, or bullying. In Romans 12.9, in fact, it says we should hate evil. We should hate it. Things like injustice, things like deceit and abuse and, and greed, that we should hate evil. Jesus enters Jerusalem in our passage today. It's the city of God. It's, it's his city, and he is angry. He's angry. But the, the bigger story here isn't his anger, but it's what, what's underneath that. What, what's, what's the foundation of that that allows him to be angry as he was? And we're going to look at that today. We're going to talk about this concept of authority because this is so important. We're going to start looking at this, that in this story, Jesus is going to exert an authority. And we'll, we'll kind of unpack this. In verse 45, which is where we're starting, Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Now Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were, who were selling things. So we're back at the temple again. We've been here several times during this series. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where God's presence dwelt on earth. Now, it wasn't like today, because today, um, Christ having come, having died for our sin, rose from the dead, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And those of us who know Christ, who have a relationship with him, we are actually the temples of God now. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. But back then, this was not the case. So there was a, a temple. And in this temple, the presence of God dwelt on earth. And it's where people would come to pray and, and to be physically close to God. It's where they would get teaching about God. It's where they would confess sin, make sacrifice for, for sin, to receive forgiveness and be right with God. Now, it's Passover season and we're told that Jerusalem swells to about two million people. A lot of people traveling a long way to come during Passover. And traveling in those days was kind of a big deal. We, we miss it today because back then you would travel on foot. So to get anywhere took a while, not, not just because you had to walk and, it, and you went slow, but because you had to get your stuff. And if you were traveling for a week or more, which is the case, we think for most of these pilgrims, imagine traveling for a week or more, you have a family with you and you're traveling on foot. It's difficult to carry enough supplies um, and you, had, you, you were going to, to sacrifice an animal at the temple. So, you know, trying to take your pet lamb with you, uh, they didn't walk very well and, you know, you pull it on the leash. And so it's a lot of work to get there. So here's what they did. Merchants would set up tables around the temple. 
so that when you got there, you could buy some of the supplies that you needed because it was really impossible to carry enough stuff with you. So they would have, you know, tables where they would sell food, where they would sell wood for, for fuel. They would sell supplies. And they also sold sacrificial animals because you would need one when you went to the temple on your day to worship. So that's not the problem. The problem isn't that they're selling things. The problem is they're ripping people off. They're, they're, they're charging unethical prices for people who have come to worship God. So the religious leaders see an opportunity to make a buck. And that's what's going on. This is why Jesus is so upset. Because people are coming to Jerusalem to worship God and the religious leaders are ripping them off. Now, there's another time when Jesus cleansed the temple and it was back in John chapter 2 a little bit different than this one we're told in that instance Jesus actually made a whip and went all Indiana Jones on everyone in that area he chased out the people he chased out the animals he sent money flying he turned over tables and he he wouldn't let anyone pass through the area which is like just try to imagine I was trying to think it's hard for us to to picture what that would look like today it might be like if Jesus went to a modern Christian worship concert today, right? Like maybe he goes to the Moda Center and there's a big Christian artist charging lots of money and he walks through the lobby and there's tables with trinkets and posters and CDs. I don't know if they sell CDs anymore, but you know that, I can just picture Jesus walking through and turning over, you know, tables and rimping up posters and saying, this is supposed to be about worshiping God and instead you've, you've selling merchandise here. I don't know, something like that. But anyways, it really infuriates Jesus. In verse 46, it tells us this. So he said to them, he said, it is written, my house, that's where he is, my house shall be a house of prayer. That is, that word prayer has the bigger idea of worship. But you have made it a den of robbers. So the temple is supposed to be a place where people come to meet with God and pray and worship and deal with sin. And the religious leaders are supposed to help them. That that's why they were there. They were supposed to encourage people to worship God. They were, they were supposed to assist people in worshiping God, to, to, to sacrificially help people do that. Instead, they saw it as a chance to make a buck. And that's what they're doing. Now, just to kind of give you a, an idea of how this works out. So this is a, a diagram of what uh, the temple in that time might have looked like. And so you've got the whole temple compound, you've got the walls, and you've got the temple building proper there in the back part. And in the very center of the temple, so inside the temple, in the middle of that building is a, is a curtained area that we refer to as the Holy of Holies. And this is where the presence of God dwelt on earth. And the high priest who was serving was the only one who was allowed to go into that room and only a couple times a year. And so just one guy could go in the center, but then in that kind of the peripheral area inside the temple, a select number of priests on a yearly basis could go in there if, if they were assigned to, to serve in there. Most priests could not go, but a small handful could. So in the center here, just one guy, and then a few more people, and then if you move outside of the uh, of the building, in that courtyard is where a larger group of priests could serve. And then if you move back towards kind of the, the wall, the covered area there, this is where Jewish men could go. So you're kind of moving, as you're moving away from the center of, the, of where God dwelt. Now, out in this court, it was called the Court of the Women, and this is for Jewish women, 
Gentiles could not go in there of any kind, but just Jewish women. And then you had the cheap seats, the nosebleed section in the motor section. And this, uh, uh, and this is where, this is called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where, if, if you and I had lived back then, that's where we would have got to go. And, and we're told that in this, in this outside area, some of the Gentiles who would come were, were believers and they would come to worship God. But a lot of those who would come were not believers, but they were curious. They wanted to know about Judaism and God and the Bible and salvation. And so they were, they were, they were supposed to be able to come and meet with priests who would pray with them and who would teach them and, and who would help them find God. What's interesting is where they put the merchandise tables. Did they put them in the Holy of Holies? Of course not. They would never do that. In the, inside the temple building, in the court of the Jews? No, they put it in the court of the Gentiles. And here's why this makes Jesus so mad. Because that is where evangelism was supposed to be taking place. This is where people could come and seek God and, and investigate and get, get answers and, and come to faith. And instead, it had been turned into a spiritual swap meet. Now, in this area, there are two big items that are, are being sold. One is they're selling sacrificial animals. In fact, um, they have old parchments that show that there would be deliveries of 3,000 animals at a time into this area. That's how many animals they were moving. So here's how this worked. You, you came to Jerusalem on the Passover and um, each family would offer a sacrifice, a sacrificial animal uh, for their sin. Now, if you brought your own animal, if you managed to be able to get it all the way there, it would have to pass inspection. You kind of have to go through, you know, Israel's DEQ. And, uh, you know, most of the time we're told your animal wouldn't pass. They would find something wrong with it and they'd say no. So you'd have to, you'd have to trade in your animal for a newer model and they'd charge you a whole bunch of money in the process. They'd just rip you off. Now, if you're like most people, you came and you didn't have an animal at all. And the only way you could get an animal was you had to buy an approved one. Again, that the religious leaders had a lock on the market so they could charge anything they wanted and that's what they did. Now, there was another big selling item and that was money for the temple tax because every male was required to pay something called the temple tax. And, and so you would come and you would offer this, uh, but you couldn't use Roman money. Because Roman money had a picture of Caesar on it, and they weren't going to accept that filthy money at the temple. So you'd have to go to a table and you'd have to trade in your, your Caesar money, your Roman money, for, for temple money. And they would charge you a huge fee in the process. Again, making a whole lot of money. I don't know, it, it would be like, imagine that you came to Gateway on the weekend and uh, we're gonna take the offering and you wanted to, let's say you wanted to put $100 in uh, the offering and so you went to do it and an usher said, oh no, we couldn't possibly take your $100 bill because it has a picture of a president on it. We're not even sure he was a Christian. So um, you have to go to a table in the back and you can exchange your money. You can exchange $100 of US money for $100 of Gateway bucks and uh, we'll only charge you a 25% fee. So, you know, in order to give 100 bucks at Gateway, it's going to cost you 125 bucks. Or if you came and you forgot your Bible, we could rent you one for 50 bucks. Or, you know, let's say you weren't allowed to bring coffee into the building, but we'd, you know, sell you eight ounces for 15 bucks. Or if you wanted to put your little bundle of joy in the nursery, ka-ching, right? Like, we're just charging for it. And that's what they're doing. People are coming to worship God and they're just charging them, charging them, charging them for everything. And guess where all of this money is going. 
See, a percentage of all the sales are going to the high priest and those who served under him because they controlled this whole area. They controlled all of it, so they got to decide who could have a table. And if you wanted to set up a table and trade there, you had to pay the high priest a fee, and then he got a percentage of everything that you made. So people are coming to meet with God. They're coming to worship. They're coming to to seek forgiveness, and the religious leaders are just ripping them off and using it to make money. And what does Jesus do? Well, he just basically, he disrupts the system. And what's interesting is that they had something called temple guards. These were men who were there to make sure that everything stayed orderly. And if you got out of, out of order, they would just escort you out of the place. And there's no mention of temple guards ever going up against Jesus. So again, you know, I don't know. Sometimes you see these pictures of Jesus. He's kind of a small guy with long blonde hair. And I don't know. I think he's kind of buff and big and, you know, because nobody was going to mess with him. Like, they just let him do whatever he wanted to do. So he doesn't get tossed out. He doesn't get arrested, which takes us to the next point, and that is not only does Jesus exert or exercise his authority, but he's going to claim authority. And this is a great part of the story in verse 47 that says this. Now, he's teaching daily in the temple, so he's teaching. He doesn't, he doesn't toss the tables and stuff and, like, run out of there and hide. He stays there. He, he tosses, he cleans out the area, and then he just hangs out there. He's teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the, the principal men of the, of the people, so all the religious leaders, who, by the way, generally do not get along, but now they're getting along just fine because they have a common enemy. They were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his every word. So he, he's teaching daily at the temple. He's staying there. Jesus spends a lot of time during his ministry preaching and teaching, which is why we try to do the same thing at Gateway. We want to mirror that or model that. And, and that's why when we come to the word of God, we want to look at the text. We want to look at the context. We want to talk about what it teaches us about God and faith. And, you know, to do that, it takes more than just pulling a, a verse out of the Bible and just, you know, hitting it up real quick and moving on. We need context. We need, we need history. And one of the things I love about this church is the fact that, that that's encouraged here, that that's, that's supported here. I have, I have friends in churches, other guys who are pastors, and, and when I tell them, oh yeah, we've been in the, the gospel of Luke for two years, they're just like, they're just you know, starry-eyed, like, oh, that would be so amazing. My church would run me out of town if I spent two years in Luke. I said, well, I don't know what they're planning, but uh, I think they're okay with it. But we want to look at the Bible and study the Bible and, because here's what we say at Gateway, that we believe that the Bible is the sole authority for, for practice and faith. So when we're teaching, it's not about what I think. It's about what the Bible teaches and what the Bible affirms. And if, if you're sitting there and I teach something or someone else in this church teaches something and you say, you know, I don't know that the Bible actually teaches that. How do we decide that? Well, we sit down together and we don't talk about what we think. We talk about what the Bible says. We look at the Bible. We, we dig into it. One of the things I just love about being a gateway, and I appreciate so much the freedom of being able to teach the word of God this way. Well, Jesus is teaching. And, and on one of these occasions when he's teaching, in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says this. Now one day, as Jesus was teaching the people of the temple, and as he was preaching the gospel, The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so again, a big group of people who don't normally get along, but now they're suddenly best buddies, come up and they said to him, tell us, 
By what authority do you do these things? These things is probably a reference to the things he's been doing for several months now, which include things like working miracles and raising people from the dead and Lazarus has just happened. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? So this is supposed to be a trick question. You see, back then the religious leaders had all of the the, the religious power in Israel. These, this, these guys right here, these are the ones who wrote the books that people read. These are the ones, these were the spiritual experts. They taught the seminars. They were the highly respected, highly educated Old Testament nerds. And they had all of the power. You could not do anything in that religious system unless they ordained you to do it. And along comes Jesus and they are sick of this guy. They're sick of him because the people are listening to Jesus uh, more than they're listening to them. Uh, his ministry is hurting their popularity. It's, it's eroding their authority uh, and their control. And, and now their finances. So their plan is to set a trap for Jesus. They're going to stump him with a theological question and embarrass him in front of a huge crowd of people. What a stupid plan, right? <laughs> but that's their plan. So here's their question. Jesus, who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? We want to see the paperwork. Show us the paperwork. Who gave you the right to teach? Who gave you the right to come in and just toss tables around in the temple? Who said that you could do that? Who said you could work miracles? Who said, who gave you authority to raise people from the dead and to cast out demons and heal people and, and to just publicly rebuke us? Because here's their point. It wasn't us. We have all the power and we didn't give you any. You can't, we, you got a piece of paper that shows that we gave you permission to do any of this stuff? We didn't give you permission. None of us have sponsored you and none of us have ordained you. Now back then, when a rabbi religious teacher taught, he always would have a, a scroll that showed who was sponsoring him, who sponsored him, where did he graduate from, who gave him authority. Jesus doesn't have a paper like that. And, and back then they would always quote, so if they were teaching and they wanted to make a really important point in the sermon, they would quote a more famous rabbi or maybe a tradition or a, or a council that had met. And along comes Jesus and he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't he, and he doesn't have to. And Jesus says things like, you know, when he's teaching, he'll say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. See what Jesus is saying, you've heard the rabbi say, you've heard the council say, ah, forget that. I say to you. Jesus' point was this, I have all authority. I don't need to uh, quote someone I don't need a piece of paper from someone who says that, you know, they're backing what I'm saying here. Jesus is saying he has all authority. And what he says next is awesome. So they asked this question. They're trying to trap him. And then he answered them and said, I also will ask you a question. Gulp. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, when you first read this, and some commentators think it's almost like a sideways question. It's, it's almost like he's just trying to, what do we call it today? Pivot. He's trying to pivot, all right? And, and kind of get off topic. But in fact, this is an incredibly genius question that he asked. So let's talk about John the baptizer for a minute, right? John was uh, Jesus' cousin. Um, he was a prophet 
who lived in the wilderness and, you know, wore old clothes, uh, hand-me-downs and ate bugs and, and all, you know, just camped out by the river. And, uh, but he was a prophet who came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he preached repentance and we're told that people came from all over and, and he baptized them and, and he was legend and, and he was revered. And the people believed that John was a prophet of God because he was. But John wasn't a part of the re religious establishment. John didn't attend their schools, didn't have their approval for ministry. John lived humbly, unlike the religious elite. He boldly taught the truth and ultimately John paid for it with his life. So, Jesus says, when you think about John's ministry, where did it come from, man or God? And they discussed it with one another. So it's kind of one of these, they're like, wait, time out, we're gonna have a committee meeting over here. <laughs> so, and, and, and they discussed it. They said, now if we say that John's ministry was, was ordained from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why did you not believe him? But if we say that it was from, from man, then all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered they did not know where he came from, which is hilarious because these are the guys with all of the answers. Here's their dilemma. If they say that John wasn't a prophet, they're going to start a riot because the people knew John was from God. But if they said he was a prophet from God, then Jesus could ask, then why didn't you listen to this prophet from God? Because John proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. John proclaimed that Jesus was the Savior of the world, that he would be the giver of the Holy Spirit. John said that Jesus would one day judge John called people to repent of their sin and to follow Jesus Christ. And when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, we're told that the Holy Spirit appeared in that moment as a, as a dove and that the Father's voice was heard. So the leaders, that, this is the interesting thing. <laughs> they will not admit. They will not admit that they are wrong. They will not repent. They will not submit to the authority of Christ. They just refuse to answer the question. And so Jesus says this, and, and neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, there comes a point when nothing more needs to be said and nothing more needs to be given. These men were given everything they needed. They didn't need anything else. There would be no convincing for them. Jesus didn't need to answer the question because it had already been answered. The Father had already answered it. The Holy Spirit had already answered that question. John the prophet had already answered that question. And Jesus answered that question himself through the very life that he lived. Does Jesus have authority? By what authority do you do this, Jesus? Well, Jesus, when he would cast out a demon, that demon would just leave because Jesus had the authority to do that. When Jesus wanted to heal somebody, even somebody who was dead, he could do it because he had all authority. When he wanted to give sight to the blind, he could do it. When he wanted to feed the hungry, when he wanted to forgive us of our sin, he could do it. He could do it because he has that authority in himself. Every one of his actions were holy and loving and gracious and right. Which brings us to our third point, And that is that Jesus has all authority. All authorities. So the, the debate back then was, 
Is Jesus really God? Does, does Jesus really have all authority? The debate is the same today. People still argue about that today. Was Jesus God? Did Jesus have any authority? And what you find is, I find a lot of people are willing to give Jesus some authority, just not all authority. It's, it's, it's rare that you find someone who will give Jesus all authority, but it's not hard to find someone who will give him some authority. For instance, I meet people all the time who will give Jesus uh, pragmatic authority. I don't know what else to call it. Pragmatic authority or self-help authority. People who will say, you know, I, I, read the, I read the things Jesus said and I do them because it works. Have you ever heard that? Like, I just do what Jesus said because it works. Jesus said to forgive people and I realized he's right. He's right, it works, because you know you kind of release yourself from the, all that bitterness and anger. And Jesus said to be generous, and it, it's kind of hard, but it, I found it works. Or he said be patient, or he said speak the truth. And what I find sometimes is people say, well, I don't know if he's God, maybe he's God, maybe he's not, I don't care. I just know, I like to read what he said because the stuff he said was good, it was good. And it, you know, it, it, pragmatically, it works. Is he Lord? I, well, I don't know. So they don't give him all authority. They give him some authority. Some people give him like self-help authority. They, they think that Jesus came so we could all, you know, get self-esteem or self-actualization. And a lot of people say that Jesus just came to make you feel good about yourself. And I'm like, have they read anything Jesus said? <laughs> because he actually came to tear you down and then build you back up into the person that you were meant to be. So, so that you don't have a self-esteem that ebbs and flows, but a, an esteem based in Christ and what he did for you. Some people like to give Christ moral authority. Like, oh, Jesus is all about doing good works and feeding the hungry. And that's, so when he talks about that, I listen to him. But, you know, the other stuff, yeah, not so much. But what a lot of us do is we give Jesus selective authority, right? So when he says something and it suits us, we're like, Sure, I'd absolutely want to do that, Jesus. But maybe if it involves, you know, giving up some sin that we don't want to give up, maybe we don't want to repent, then maybe not so much authority. And so we start to rationalize. And I hear this a lot. Well, you know, Jesus said that, but it was 2,000 years ago, and things are very different today. The world is different today. You know, culture is different. It's not like it was back in Jesus' day. People are, people are totally different, whole different set of issues. Sexuality is different. Marriage is different. I mean, there was no internet back then. You couldn't Google anything. I just, yeah, how could Jesus know about all this stuff? You know, he said to be generous, but finances are different today. And when we do that, what we're really saying is, I'm, no, I believe Jesus had some authority, just not all authority. I, here's what a lot of us like to do. We like to say, oh, well, Jesus had absolute authority when it came to um, being God in the flesh and dying for my sin, and he has the authority to forgive my sins and raise me from the dead and deliver me to heaven. Does he have the authority to command me to be generous? Yeah, yeah I don't know about that. So we like to pick and choose. Here's a verse that we often think of when we think of evangelism, but this is actually a great verse when we think about authority. After Jesus has been arrested, after Jesus has been crucified, after he has risen from the dead, he's talking with his disciples and he says this. Jesus came and he said to them, notice what he said, he said, all authority, how much authority? All authority. Now, you might want to note this. That word all in the Greek, it means all. It means like, everything, all authority. It's crazy in, in, in heaven and on earth. So 
he's kind of repeating himself when he says, all authority. And then he says, on heaven and earth, because by the way, there's only two places you will ever exist in terms of space and time, heaven and earth. And Jesus says, I have all authority, any place that you will ever be, and beyond that. So just to make it clear, all right, all authority on heaven, on earth, has been given to me in the council of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is decided that Jesus is the one in whom all authority will reside. And he says this, he says, now go therefore, based on the fact that he has all authority, and notice this, and make disciples of all nations. So once again, what's Jesus saying? I have all authority in heaven and earth, and now I want you to take the gospel because the gospel is for all people. And I died for all people. For all people, every race, every tribe, everywhere on the earth, everywhere through time, Jesus says, I have died for all. I have authority over all. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And notice this. And teaching them to observe what? All, right? Not some, not 50% or, you know, what suits you. Teach them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Why? Because he has all authority, all of it. Not just the authority to save you. And how much sense does that make, by the way, to believe that he has enough authority to save you, but not enough authority to tell you how to live? on a daily basis. So a couple of questions just to consider as we wrap this up. First of all, I just wanna ask you on an intellectual you know, basis, like, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Like as you've studied scripture and thought about it, do you believe that he was God in the flesh? Do you believe that as he said, he is eternal and omnipotent and omniscient and immutable and all those words and, the, and savior? Do you believe that? In fact, what the Bible says is the demons believe, they, they believe that he's Lord. But what separates them from us is that we confess Christ as Lord. The Bible says that if you, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's my question. Have you confessed from your heart? Do you confess not just that he is Lord, but that he is your Lord? Number three, do you believe that Jesus has all authority or just some? Which is it, all or some? And if you say all, because I know, you know, probably most of us sit here and go, oh no, he has all authority. Then here's my question for you. Then what are the implications for your life today? When he asks you to do something, are you like the Pharisees who question, who resist, who will not repent, who will not give in, who will not bow down? Or do you trust him? Do you trust him as Lord? About a year ago, I've shared this with you, but about a year ago, I um, injured my left shoulder. And so I kind of went through a period of time where I thought I could, you know, just fix it myself. And that didn't work. So back in um, September, I had surgery on my shoulder. And then after a little time of healing, I started going to physical therapy. And after 10 months of kind of protecting my shoulder and at times just hardly being able to use this arm at all, after 10 months, you don't realize how you just kind of work around not being able to use it. And so I had 
hardly used it for 10 months. I started going to physical therapy here recently. And so, you know, I'd have these instances where I'd be in there and my physical therapist would be like, okay, so now we're going to try this next exercise. It's going to be really tough, all right? So I'm going to, I mean, we're going to take and we're going to do this. You're going you're gonna to move your arm all the way up, right? And I would like watch him doing this, you know, and they'd be like, we're going to grab something and pull it down. And I just, just hurt me. Like I was just standing there like this. It would hurt to watch him. And in my mind, I would be thinking, well, I can't do that. I haven't been able to do that for 10 months and that hurts. I'm not doing that, you know? And I'd watch him and then he'd do it and then he'd look at me and he'd, hand, you know, hand me the van. And you, and I'd, I, in those moments, I'd have to ask myself, well, do I trust him? Do I trust that he knows what he's doing? This is what he does. As my wife likes to remind me all the time, he's the one who's the physical therapist, not you. It's not you. You don't know about, that's why you're going. That's why you're paying, right? So, you know, he'd be like, he'd just look at me, hand me that, you know, here, grab this and do what I just did and extend your arm all the way up there, right? And I'd be like, but in that moment, I had to decide. Do I trust him? Do I, do I want to give him that kind of authority? And the good news is that I've learned, in fact, that I can trust him and things are going well, but this is kind of like what's going on for us spiritually. Because Jesus comes to us. He says, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. And sometimes it's easy for us to go, well, I don't know. Jesus, I don't know if that'll work. That seems, that's gonna hurt. <laughs> All right, I've, I've tried that. I, I don't know if it works. Jesus comes and says, I've got the authority to command you to do what's right. I will only ever ask you to do what's right. I would never ask you to do something that's not right, that's not best for you. But he also has the power to back it up. He has the power to take care of you. So Jesus says, trust me. Even when what I have to say seems difficult, even when it might seem impossible, Jesus says, trust me. So when he commands us to love one another, we talked about that for three weeks, right? And some of you might have been thinking, Jesus, have you met some of the one another's in my life? Because <laughs> I'm finding it hard to love one another. Jesus says, but do you trust me? Do you trust me? Well, of course, you know, that was the easy part. Then he says things like, love your enemies. And again, you might be thinking, I don't know, I, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I tried that once, it hurt. I was reaching up and it just did, you know, it hurt, Jesus. Forgive as you've been forgiven. When the Bible says be generous and you think, I don't, but I don't know if I can do that. Serve other people before yourself. Put the interests of others before yourself. Give the other person the remote. Let the other person choose where you're going to eat. Serve the other person. And you say, well, I don't know. If I did that, if I put other people first, then people just walk all over me. I don't know if I can do that, Jesus. When Jesus says serve other people. When Jesus says proclaim the gospel and you think, well, I don't know if I can do that. It could get ugly. It could get tense. When the Bible says give thanks in all things and you, know, you don't want to give thanks. Or when it says repent of something. See, the big question is this. It's just this. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that not only he has the authority to ask these things, but he, he always asks you to do what's best for you? And he's there for you. Now, let me ask you this. What does that mean for you? Like, what is Jesus asking you to do today for his kingdom? Maybe in your family, in your neighborhood, where you work. So because here's one of the things I find week in and week out. People always come up to me after a sermon and say, wow, how did you know? How did you know that I needed to hear that sermon and what God, and I always say the same thing. Because I know everything. Uh, no, <laughs> I always say the same thing. I had no idea. I, I didn't know, but God knew. 
Because see, if you're a Christian, here's what I know. The Holy Spirit is working in your life, is working in your mind, is working in your heart. He's working in you. He's building you up. And he, he set you up for this morning because he loves you. What has Jesus been asking you to do? And will you say yes to him today? Let me pray for us.